Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's pray before we get into the message here. Father, I'll be brief in my prayer. I just ask that you would give me assistance to rightly divide your truth, to, to speak it in the power of your Spirit. And pray for assistance for those who are hearing, that our hearts would be open to receive your word, that we would be changed by it. I pray that the spirit of Philippians 2 would be the spirit of First Baptist. And Lord, what a blessing it has been these years, for it has been present. And I just pray that it would increase all the more to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so typically, all across the world, churches are observing what is known as Palm Sunday. High five day in my book. It's not high five day, right? It's the day when Jesus came down into Jerusalem on the donkey. And there he was met with cries of Hosanna from children, from his disciples, and from others. All fulfilling that prophecy that was given in the book of Zechariah. Now, if you've been around this church for a little while, we just covered Zechariah. Matthew did a really good job at that. And for that reason, today I'm not going to teach or preach the traditional Palm Sunday message, or not use the Palm Sunday text. And to me, and I don't mean to be irreverent here, but Palm Sunday always seemed like a farce. Right? Though Christ was worthy of the people's praises, though he received their praises, right? Matthew even says, not Pastor Matthew, but the Gospel of Matthew, says that had they not praised him, even the rocks would have cried out. But when you read the book of John, you see that their shouts and their cries all came from hearts of unbelief, right? And Christ did not come to Jerusalem to seek the glory of man, but the glory that comes from God, right? God who would highly exalt him and bestow on him the name that is above every name. Christ's glory would not come through the people of Jerusalem that day, right? It would come through his obedience to the Father's will by dying on the cross and suffering for our sins. 
Now, this time of year, like Christmas, we spend a concentrated effort looking at things Christ has done, right? Christmas, we look at the incarnation. Easter, we look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we're going to look at the resurrection next week. But it's this work of God at the cross and the empty tomb that is the greatest reason for all the hope that we have, the hope for salvation. But not only is it our greatest hope, it's also our greatest example of how we should live as born-again Christians and citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So that's what I want to focus today in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2. Paul takes, in Philippians chapter 2, the humility of Christ, his dying on the cross, and I would dare say even his resurrection and glorification, as an example of how we should, the type of lives that we should live. Jesus says it this way, and it was in our call to worship, our meditation scripture. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But Paul says it this way in verse 27 of our text. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what follows after verse 27 is what it looks like to have your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul will unpack all of that in this section that we're covering here. Now the word only is in the ESV translation, it's in the NASB, it's in the King James. It's not in all yours, but that word only is meant to complete the thought that Paul had in the earlier part of the chapter. And what's going on here is Paul was in prison at the time of writing this letter to the Philippians. And he didn't know the outcome of his imprisonment. Maybe they would put him to death. Maybe they would release him and he'd be able to come back and see the Philippians. Paul even says that he knew that to depart, that is to die, would be better, far better, because then he would be present with the Lord. But he felt very strongly that he would still have some work here to do, not only in Rome, but with the Philippians. And for the sake of the gospel, so he felt confident and hopeful that he would one day again return to see the Christians there in Philippi. But whether Paul was to return or not, he wanted to encourage these believers to persevere in the faith. Just as they had obeyed when they were with him, he wants them to obey even in his absence. And so he says, whether I return or not, that's verse 26, I think the NIV says it really well, whatever happens, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this phrase, let your manner of life, is a phrase, is a translation of a word that means citizen, citizenship, right? To behave as citizens, which is a big deal to the Philippian Christians because most of that church would have been made up of Roman citizens. And to be a Roman citizen came with great privileges, but it also came with great expectations. They were expected, as Roman citizens, to act proper, as proper citizens. But it was not their earthly citizenship that Paul is referring to here. And he states that explicitly in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, Our, your, all of our citizenship, those who are in Christ, is in heaven. And Paul is calling on the Philippians to act as proper citizens of the kingdom of God. The CSB that Matthew really likes does a really good job here. It says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, my plan here today is not to cover everything in chapters 127 through chapter 2. There's plenty of things that we could talk about. John Piper, John MacArthur, these guys did nine sermons in this section. We're going to do one. My hope today, though, is to show you what a manner of life looks like as our lives, as we live our lives as citizens of heaven, but here on earth. Today we're going to look at one main characteristic, 
Right? I originally had three, and you can thank me later for cutting them out, but one main characteristic of a church, like this church, of whose manner of life is worthy of the gospel. Now, this is not the only characteristic. Right? If we have time later in the future, maybe I'll preach on this again, and we'll discuss those. But this is the main point that Paul is trying to drive here in this section. And it's this. A church whose manner of life is worthy of the gospel will have this one characteristic. Will have this characteristic. They will be united in the mind of Christ. They will be united in the mind of Christ. Let's take a look at our text here. Because the characteristic of a church whose manner of life is worthy of the gospel is that they will be united. And to be fair, the word united is nowhere in Philippians chapter 1 or 2. That's Sean's word. It's a biblical word. It's used often in the Bible. But it's the word I'm using to sum up all these adjectives and descriptions that he gives to explain the one mind, the one united mind that the Philippian Christians are to have, the one mind that I'm encouraging us to have. It starts in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, driving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not a very weird question to ask, probably never heard this before, but have you ever heard of a phalanx? Yeah, some people, maybe nurses too, phalanx, could be fingers. But uh, no, I don't refer to the fingers. It's P-H-A-L-A-N-X, phalanx. That's Claire Glenn's way of describing words. It's the type of formation that the ancient Greek and Roman armies would use when they would line up and fight in war. Right? Groups of Roman soldiers, tightly knit together, would line up side by side with these massive shields. And these shields would stretch out and not only cover their body, but it would protect the soldier to the right and to the left. Uh, and then their feet, right? Their feet would plant firmly into the ground as they pressed forward and advanced their kingdom, right? This is how Rome conquered the then known world. This is the language that Paul is using to describe the unity the church is to have, the unity that we're to have within the church. But rather than advancing some earthly kingdom, Christians are called to strive or to labor side by side for the faith of the gospel, right? advancing the kingdom of God. Now, sadly, if you know your history, it shows that at times the church has taken this far too literally. But Paul is not calling Christians to take up arms against unbelievers or pagan nations. Ephesians 6, 12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual battle. Unless the Philippians take Paul's words too literally, he adds even more clarifying words to describe the unity that we are to possess. Drop down to chapter 2, verse 1. And he starts this way, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and the point of these verses here, they're meant to be somewhat rhetorical. Of course there's encouragement in Christ. Of course there is comfort in love. There's affection and sympathy. But what Paul's asking is, have you participated in this? Right? If so, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And here we just have more words describing this unity that's to be possessed by the church. To put it simply, the church is to be united in love and singular in purpose. United in love and singular in purpose. 
And now with all the words that Paul uses, I think there's six adjectives. He repeats one a second time, but all the words that he uses to describe this unity, he sums them up in that one phrase, one mind. The church is to be united by having the same mind. Now, if you know the people of this church, most of you do, not all of you are new here, you'll know that we are anything but exactly the same, right? Not all of us grew up here in Delphi or in Indiana. Not all of us grew up in Christian homes. Not all of us actually drive Subarus, although Patrick Kelly's doing a pretty good job at making sure that happens. Uh, not all of us, and I say this timidly, root for Purdue. I won't tell you who doesn't. Not all of us homeschool our children. Not all of them send them to public school. Not all of us even vote Republican. Our ethnicities are not the same. We do not share the same interests or the same passions. And I would dare say that's what makes this church so great. Right? That the, the, every tribe and every tongue will fill heaven. Right? What a beautiful, colorful, wonderful place it's going to be. So many different people. Right? And I would say these differences make the church amazing. And that Paul is not calling us to be the same as everyone else around you. Right? When Paul calls us to be of one mind, he has something very specific in mind. No pun intended there. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he calls it the mind of Christ. But in verses 3 and 4, he shows exactly what it means. Right? This isn't something separate from the unity. This is what that unity looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Now, we're very familiar with selfish ambition. Right? We have either worked with, seen, or known of politicians who've gotten into office, not to serve the people they represent, not to serve their country, but to line their own pockets with cash or goodies, right? to serve their own interests. This is selfish ambition. As a teenager, I used to do my chores, and if my mom is listening to this, very little, very, very rarely would do my chores. I did not do these things to make my mom happy. I did not do these things to serve my family, but usually I was grounded because I was getting in trouble a lot, and I thought I could butter mom up so that when she got home, oh, the dishes were done. I can't believe they're done, and maybe I could ask her to allow me to do something, right? Selfish ambition is something doing something solely for your own benefit or for your own self-promotion. Now, the word conceit means vain glory. It's the same characteristics the Pharisees had in Jesus' time. As you recall, when they would give to the poor, they would shout, No, I'm giving to the poor, and they'd make these large sums of money, and they would make clanging symbols so that everyone would know how generous they are. Right? They would... They would What's the word? They would deform their faces and look miserable when they fasted so that everyone would see them and they think, oh man, that guy is pious. He must really love God. And so there they received their reward, didn't it? That was vain glory. It's no different today. There are countless videos on Facebook and social media of men and women promoting themselves as they videotape, which I guess you don't videotape anything anymore, as they record themselves doing what? giving charity to people. It's all over the internet. Look how generous I am. That's not the only time it happens. Right? Maybe you're here this morning to promote yourself so that everyone here or everyone in your family will think that you are a very good person. I don't know that it's happened here, but I know of spouses who have come to church in order to make their husband or their wife look bad. 
In the middle of a divorce, I have seen women and men go to church so as to persuade the judge in that battle that, oh, I'm the upstanding citizen, they are not. It's this type of attitudes that are not to be present in the church. It's not to be present in this church. What is to be present amongst the people of the church is humility. Now, humility is hard to define, but Paul doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us what humility looks like here when he says, counting others more significant than yourself, looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, what Paul does not say is that the person to the right of you or to the left of you or up here in the pulpit is more significant, but that you are to count them more significant. Right? There's no need to do any mental limbo or yoga and try to think, oh, this guy is better than me in this way, so I can, I can use that to try to think of him as better than me. No, you just, it's an exercise of the mind. You count, you consider that person, whether they are or not, more significant than yourself. Nobody was more significant in all of creation than Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom and by whom and for whom all things were created, and yet he counted us more significant. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Most of us here live very, very busy lives. I'm all over the Midwest. I'm working, doing Sunday school. I am busy and get distracted. Many of you have similar lives. Right? We're in school. We're going to work. Maybe you're looking for a spouse or you're starting a family. Maybe you're trying to have children or raising children, going to sports, going to plays, any of the countless things that we have interest in this world, we are doing on a regular basis. And I would say that the Bible says these things are very important, right? and we ought not to neglect them. But neither should you neglect the people in the pews around you. Right? We are to... I mean, I lose my point here. Let us not look only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Just quickly, I want to give you a real-world example of what this looks like. There are two men in my life who exemplify this towards me on a regular basis. And they're probably going to be embarrassed and upset that I'm calling them out on this. But the two men in my life are Justin Darling and Nick Devaney. Justin is often checking in with me just to see how I'm doing. Come over to my house, we'll have breakfast. It doesn't get to happen that often, but uh, just to see how I'm thinking. Am, Am I being encouraged? Am I being brought down? Am I depressed? Is he, how am I doing spiritually or as a father or as an elder? He's always looking in after me. And even this week, he texts me to see how I was doing after I've been sick last Sunday. Nick, you check in with me more than my parents do. And then my parents love me, right? Multiple times a week, I get encouragement from Nick with scripture and questions. How you doing, brother? How's things going? Right? And this may be as simple as a text from a brother or a sister, or taking time to drive a widow or someone in need to church, making a meal, a meal, a meal for a family in need. It may not be because they're poor. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they just had a baby or surgery. Right? It's helping someone move. It's visiting them in the hospital when someone is ill, or just coming by to encourage a lonely brother or sister, or just encourage a brother who needs it. Right at First Baptist, we often say that there are a hundred programs for you to get involved in. And they are the people to your right and to your left. I guess your right and your left. Many of you, most of you, I, we could talk the rest of the time about all the examples that I've seen in many of you. But many of you take this faithfully. 
Many of you faithfully take this to heart. My message today isn't meant to be a rebuke, right? unless you need that rebuke. It's meant to encourage you to do so more and more, because this is what it means to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Looking not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Having one mind amongst ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, what does Paul mean that this is ours in Christ Jesus? He's not just promoting a healthy society. He didn't just pull this off the shelf of some church growth book that he got from the seminary library. Right? He has something in mind here. What he's saying in verses 1 through 5 is that if there's any encouragement in Christ, any participation in the Spirit, i.e., if you are a Christian, then this is how you should act, for you are in Christ, and therefore you should have his mind. A servant is not greater than their master. And we are called to have the same mind Jesus had when he came to die for our sins. And to follow the example of Christ, I'm sorry, follow the example laid down by Christ, who, verse 6 of chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the New Testament overwhelmingly testifies that Jesus was and is equal to God the Father. What Paul is telling us here is that Jesus did not count, that's that word again, count this equality a thing to be grasped. Paul is showing us the mind of Christ and that he counted this as something not to be grasped, even though he deserved it. Christ, who though he was equal with God, did not count this as a thing to be laid hold of. What Paul means by that is that Jesus did not cling so tightly to that glory which he deserved and which he had there at the beginning. Instead, leaving the peace, the security, and the advantage of heaven, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And if this was not enough, being found in human form, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this good news is our only hope for our salvation. It cleanses us from our sins. Hebrews tells us that it clears our conscience. Christ's work at the cross paid our debts to God and even imputes to us his very own righteousness. But the work of Christ is also our greatest example of how we should live with one another, how we are to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Dying to ourselves and serving others. I want to share some quotes I found on the internet from New Age Psychologists, I'm not sure exactly who these people were, but they serve a point. Here's the quote. When you no longer deny your own needs and desires, a weight is lifted from your shoulders. Self-abandonment is a self-destructive pattern that can contribute to anxiety, anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, and unfulfilled relationships. Abandoning yourself, according to these people, may, not, may have been necessary during the childhood, but it isn't helpful anymore, they say. And the world would tell you that the type of attitude that Paul was advocating here today, the type of attitude that I am advocating, is harmful and destructive. 
The new gospel of this world, and sadly infecting the church, is that you are all worthy and deserve to be happy. And you may be asking yourself, really, at this moment, what about my own happiness? What kind of type of life would I live if I deny myself and my own interests and go and serve others? Jesus has an answer for that. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Paul is not calling on the church to forsake their own happiness, but to pursue it with all their might in the way that God has provided. True everlasting life and everlasting joy cannot be obtained on this side of heaven, cannot be found in this life. And Jesus not only provides this blessedness for us at the cross, but by the cross, he shows us the way to find it. Jesus did not just go to the cross for the sake of obedience. Obedience was not the end, but a means to glory. Look at verse 9. After speaking of his humility and his dying on the cross, we see Paul pick up in verse 9. Therefore, because of these things, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory to the glory of God the Father. Now, some would teach that it's wrong to obey God for the sake of the reward. That this is just another form of selfishness. That statement, I would argue, is unbiblical and not Christ-like at all. Right? We read in Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Right? That is the cross that we're bearing. That is the path that we are on. The race before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I would argue that the reason why Paul includes the exaltation of Christ here in Philippians 2 in his example is not only to show the type of life that we are to live here in this world, but also to show what lies ahead for all those who take up their cross and follow Jesus. Whoever exalts himself, Jesus says, will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Paul uses verses 9 through 12 in an astounding, sorry, Paul, the words Paul uses in verses 9 through 12 are an astounding statement about the deity of Christ. And they come loosely from Isaiah 45, verses 22 to 23. You can turn there, you can listen along. This is Yahweh, this is God the Father speaking in Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And he who would share his glory with no other has bestowed his very own name upon the one who would come to die for our sins. Now although we will never be equal to our Lord in name or in person, I want you to listen to this other, maybe even more equally, can't be more equally, but equally astounding word in Revelation chapter 3. This is the words of Jesus to the church. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you see that we humble ourselves and look to others rather than ourselves. When we humble ourselves and look to others rather than ourselves, we do not forsake our life and happiness. We pursue it. Some would argue that Paul does not include this statement in Philippians for that purpose. They would say Paul is just getting ahead of himself or carried away in his praise of Christ as he does elsewhere. And I'd like to show you briefly, you're going to have to follow along here if you've got a Bible, to show you briefly that this is why I think Paul has this in mind. Philippians chapter 1, just really quickly, in verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's just a small statement there. We could expound on that forever, but just jump all the way back down to chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8. Indeed, I count, I'm sorry, indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. He continues in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He continues the thought in verse 17 of chapter 3. This will be the last one we're going to read from. Brothers, church, join in imitating Paul. Not Sean as much, but brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, and here's that point, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so, church, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ by being united in one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. By his power, press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To the glory of the Father. Right? Amen? We're not a big amen church, are we? That's okay. I have one more thing to say. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you've not experienced this encouragement in Christ. Right? You find no comfort from love and have no participation in the Spirit. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, look to our risen Savior, who was equal with God, but counted it not a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself by taking on flesh and dying on a cross. This he did so that all who call upon his name may be given the right to become children of God. And so I encourage you, entreat you, beg you, call upon his name this morning. Seek his mercy while it's still being offered. If you have questions about how to be saved, you can speak to me, you can speak to Bill, you can speak to any one of our officers, or those guys, what we call them, uh, yeah, to any one of our members, come talk to somebody, and they'll let you know how to be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is that work at the cross that has led me and all the people that are here to this very moment to hear from your word, to rejoice in our salvation. All of it was made possible because of Christ's humility and obedience. What a humbling thought to think that you had loved us so much that you would give us your own son. Lord, it does not create pride and arrogance, but humility to think that you would love such lowly sinners. And yet it gives us such hope and joy to know that we are so loved. I pray for the spirit of humility, counting others more significant than ourselves to spread throughout this church, that we would not be concerned with our own interests, but the interests of others. And so walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, which you have called us to, standing firm side by side for the faith of the gospel. May your kingdom spread, Lord, in our love for each other. May it spread out into this world to those whom you have called. And may you be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.